Once again, I want to preach on the reading from the book of Job and also the gospel, the story of the rich young man. In their own way, each of these have something to do with how we understand our relationship with God and how we understand the presence of God or perhaps for some of us, the absence. And what sense do we make out of that and how do we Uh, come to terms with it, what are some of the ways that we might cultivate to understand how to cultivate the presence of God and to at least be able to touch it in some form as we live our lives. So for the next, uh, counting last week, for the next four weeks we're going to be reading in the book of Job. And today we, we began the book of Job last week, I should mention again, Job uh, is hard to date. Uh, it's anywhere from uh, six or 900 B.C. to 200 B.C. It is some of the best Hebrew uh, writing in the Old Testament. There are more Hebrew words that occur only in Job than in any other book uh, in the Hebrew Bible. I mention that because it doesn't have a lot to do with the sermon, but these are the kinds of facts you can amaze your friends with if they ever come up. So you can tell them that you know something about uh, the composition of the book of Job. So here's what we've got today. Job is anxious and worried and nervous and frightened because he cannot feel God's presence. And he has no understanding about how in the world these afflictions have been visited on him. Now remember, in the wisdom literature of which Job is a part, there are a number of understandings in the ancient Near East of what wisdom means. And so before Job, we read for a while in the book of Proverbs, one of the earliest uh, pieces of the wisdom literature. And the view of wisdom that we receive from the book of Proverbs is that a wise person understands that the circumstances in which they find themselves are of their own making. And so a wise person will understand in their life they need to sort of do something and maybe that will change their circumstances since they're of their own making. The book of Job arrives on the scene, and it's about a man who suffers affliction, and it isn't his fault. He's righteous, he's blameless, he hasn't done anything. And in fact, he is the victim of a cruel bet between the Satan and God, who have decided and connived to see if they can afflict this man, Job, and that as a result of doing that, he will curse God. I said last week that... um, My own uh, personal understanding is that I think the Gospels uh, tell us that God is not capricious. Be that as it may, Job is trying to figure out where God is in all of this, and he refuses it to this point to curse God, and he is struggling to find out uh, if God is present. It It is the classic a dark night of the soul in Western Christian spirituality and in some ways the classic movement uh, of the soul towards wanting to understand God's presence. By the way, Father Thomas Keating would say uh, in capsule form that the spiritual life 
is a, has a threefold process as you think about it. The first is that as you, even from uh, childhood, you begin to think of God as the other with a capital O. And the second piece of this, if you become intentional, is that you wish to seek God or seek to become the other. And then as you become proficient, you realize that you and the other are one. We are not God, but our true self is God. So I thought I'd talk some about the processes, the way in which Episcopalians have understood this way, this movement, uh, to, to accomplish, in one sense, what Father Keating talks about in this threefold way. In the classic spiritual life, uh, we used to call this the purgative, illuminative, and unitive ways of practicing spirituality. But before that, let me talk about the one that's the most recent but has had wide influence, not just in Anglicanism, but in uh, Christianity generally. And it's a type of spirituality that we call pietism. And what pietism is, is the uh, belief that in order for you to be in, you have to have a felt, felt experience of the presence of God. In some traditions, they call it the consolation. In other traditions, they call it being born again. But it's a felt experience. John Wesley, an Anglican priest, said he had, he, his heart was strangely warmed when he heard the epistle to the Romans read when he was at Alder's Gate. I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the epistle to the Romans read, I get into a big think. Not strange warming, but then again, you know, people are different. Pietism is something that is part of our tradition. It comes to us from maybe the late 17th, early 18th century. Pietism is, is uh, something that isn't just uh, Anglican, it's, it's Lutheran. For example, Johann Sebastian Bach was influenced by the pietist movement, and a lot of his hymns and music reflects it. We, the hymn we just sang between the, it has a sort of pietist overtone uh, to it in that sense, this, this idea of a personal relationship. I'm not throwing cold water on this. My personal belief is that these two things are not mutually exclusive. They're um, compatible. So some people uh, find that that is something that import, is important and serves them well. But the second one, which is the most ancient one, is the one that I prefer, that I've, I talk about often, but it's time to talk about it again. And if you want to read about it in a little more detail, you can read a small book by Urban T. Holmes III called What is Anglicanism? And in the chapter on spirituality, Terry talks about um, this path, which he calls mysticism. It's unfortunate because when you use the term mysticism, 
it puts a lot of people off uh, because it sounds kind of like this, right? Remember, when we use the term mystery in theology, we're not just talking about something we don't know or can't know. We're also talking about something that is infinitely knowable. So let me see if I can use an example that might uh, strike home. You know, if you're interested in something, if you have a hobby or in your vocation and work, and you become a student of it, we're going to talk about that in a minute, you begin all, all of a sudden to define that this is a very deep thing, and it draws you in, and there's more and more that you discover uh, with something that initially appeared incomprehensible. And now it's becoming a little bit more clear. So the mystical path, or the ascent to God, involves five things. And I'm going to read them to you and then explain them. The first is purgation. The second is emptying. The third is study. The fourth is discipline. And the fifth is patience. So the first two terms are perhaps the most foreign to us. Purgation is the process of purging yourselves of those habits of being and relating and on, on your interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states that keep you from being centered in God, keep you from uh, achieving some health and wholeness in your relationships and some species of balance in your life. And so it's a process of being able to identify those things Father Keating says, you know, we're a mystery to ourselves. And I'm sure that uh, all of you have run into people that appear to have absolutely no self-knowledge of any kind. Either It's either willful or they have just simply not need, thought that they needed to think about it. Right? So this may not be the easiest thing in the world to identify those aspects of our character that need reform. But the purgative process is part of that in the spiritual life, in the mystical journey. The second aspect, emptying, has to do specifically with the life of prayer, both corporate and public and personal and private. And it means that uh, you, you make a main force effort to push to the side those distractions that accompany our everyday living. It's, it seems a mystery to me, I must say, that we have spent so much time trying to simplify or to remove distraction, and in fact we have now ourselves distracted beyond a belief, right? Part of that is the remote control on the television. Right? As soon as you're, you know, I still go like this. <laughs> I'm a baby, so when I'm going to change the channel, I go like that, like it makes a difference, right? <laughs> but I still remember when I was a little boy, we, uh, my grandparents had something called the clicker. And the clicker was the remote that went in order to make the channel change. So we're changing the channel and we're more and more distracted. We've been laboring over time in this great system we have to continuously create a whole host of labor-saving devices. Are we less busy? Do we have less work? 
No. So maybe we need to do a think about that, some form of emptying. When you start this process and you sit, Father Keating, when he talks about centering prayer, he says it's like being on a beach chair in, the Suez, in front of the Suez Canal and watching the ships go by. All of those distractions. And when we come to church and when we come to the Eucharist, it's important to be able to, in some intentional way, to say we're going to try to be as, as undistracted, if that's a word, as we can be during this process. So sometimes something will get through, some moment of clarity. Purgation, emptying, study, which is becoming the, the student you need to be about the deep things of Christian faith and belief, or even those parts of Christianity that seem to interest you, but also to understand in the spiritual life that study has something to do with being the best student you can be uh, for, about those things that affect your vocation, affect the passions that you have about things, um, make you better at your hobbies. All of those things have something to do with being a student, with exercising some form of study learning about things, you know. The, the, the fourth thing is discipline. And that is the cultivation of the interior uh, self-discipline and self-regulation to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis. Dean Parsons, the first dean of Neshota when I was there as a seminarian, used to call these things the duties of state. Those are, that's a very old-fashioned term in the spiritual life for those sorts of things, those disciplines. Get up and brush your teeth so that you're able to, in some way now, face the day and to uh, be able to deal and cope more readily with those things that are in front of you. Some form of self-discipline about how you live. And finally, patience, which is the thing that is the hardest to realize that in this process, uh, you're not going to have this mastered overnight as much as you wish. And we live in a country that seeks symptom relief. We live in a country that wants instant gratification. And so the idea of any of the processes uh, that are at work in our interior states and also in our relational life become vexing and very difficult. But we need to understand that these happen in God's own time. Two words for time in the Greek New Testament. Chronos, you know, time in your watch, chronological time. And the other word is kairos, which is time. <laughs> you know, time. And that's how these things happen in God's time, in kairos, time. So this mystical path is the process by which you and I can gain some clarity with regard to how we live our lives. Job has received, between the opening chapter we read last time and this reading, 23 chapters later, a bunch of advice. So you and I need to spend some time in our life making a distinction between all the advice we get about how we need to live our lives and to learn how to come to the conclusions we need to through engaging in some intentional process, you know? I had a wise priest tell me many years ago that unwanted advice has the odor of ancient fish. 
And I bet you believe that too because you probably have received a surfeit of it in your life as we all have. The rich young man in Mark's gospel. I should warn you that in the next few weeks we'll be having very similar readings to this because it's no uh, coincidence that there are oblique stewardship themes in the readings that we're going to receive from the Gospels. And they're about right relationship with our stuff. And this is the first reading that we get from Mark's Gospel about the rich young man. A rich young man comes, he kneels before Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him he needs to practice his religion. He needs to keep the commandments. He needs to do these things. And he said, I've done all of these things since I was young. And he said, well, you lack one thing. You need to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Now, when you and I read this passage... Do we really believe that we're going to become St. Francis of Assisi tomorrow at 6.30 a.m. when we get up or whenever you get up? The answer is no. So maybe this reading has something to do with understanding right relationship and the affection that this young man had for his things. And perhaps the the need, in his case, for a realignment of his understanding of his possessions. Everybody, in my opinion, needs to enjoy the fruits of their labor. It is important to understand that the successes that we have are a combination of our own skills and abilities and a big, heaping spoonful of serendipity. And so the Christian faith and life has something to do with encouraging us to express something that is natural to our humanity. And that is our generosity and our expansiveness and our willingness to extend. My predecessor, Father Stuart Schlegel, uh, is an anthropologist. And he used to talk to me when I first came to St. Luke's about an, an anthropological term called kinship altruism. In anthropology, kinship altruism is that when you study the origin of groups and people as they have evolved over time, we find one of the most, uh, the strongest instincts in something called kinship altruism, and that is the desire and the belief and the understanding that you need to take care of those people that are closest and dearest to you, like your family. The kinship group. So Jesus, living in a period in the ancient Near East where kinship altruism was the absolute center of their self-understanding, was encouraging people to say that that, the intensity of that sense of connection and generosity that you express to your kinship group needs now to be expanded to everyone else so that we are all a big family of generous expression. 
And that means when we think and pray and reflect about the relationship between ourselves and the stuff that we have, we have to ask the question, what is it that they, that they do for us? Why are we so attached to these things? And Father Thomas Keating once again would say, because that touches the three energy centers that cause us most of our stormundrang in our life, right? Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And if these things help us and assist us in being able to feel more serene and comfortable and powerful and so forth, then we would be loath to let them go, wouldn't we? Or to believe that we could actually rely on the power of God at work in our life to produce that form of serenity. So that it isn't necessarily either or, but it's both and. So when we read stories like this, uh, we need to keep that in mind. I read a commentary about this part of Mark's Gospel this week, and the commentator said, uh, here in the story, Jesus is not adding anything to be done by a man who has been practicing his religion since his youth. On the contrary, Jesus is calling him to cast aside all other dependencies and in radical trust stand bare before the God who gives. In other words, this is a call to discipleship. There is here no praise of poverty or an attack on the wealthy. The world's goods can be passed around without love or trust in God. And many plans for such have been devised. But here stands a person whose life has been defined by wealth. And sadly, he will not accept a new definition of himself, a man rich before God. In a very rare use of the word love in Mark, the writer says Jesus loved him. The man asked a big question. And he got a big answer. Small answers to ultimate questions are insulting. He was allowed to say no to Jesus. Where there is no room to say no, a yes is meaningless. Now the text says the young man went away very sad. But here's what he went away with. He went away with the knowledge that Jesus loves him, that Jesus unconditionally accepts and forgives him. So maybe if you were, had this text open on your lap and you were doing a Lectio Divina, a meditation on the text, you might say, it's not too late, is it? He can always come back. And he knows that he will not be refused. And so this is sort of a call for all of us to say, maybe I'm not there yet with the ability to, in some unconditional way, practice my generosity, but I want to learn how to be more generous to extend and to bring the same intensity of care and concern and nurture to others in my life that I do to my kinship group. So this week, give thanks for the opportunity to practice generosity. Uh, give thanks for the mystical journey and for God's presence in your life, even when you don't feel it. Amen.